Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to Mind Shifters Radio with the Forgiveness Doctor, Dr. Michael Rice. I'm Jeannie Rice, your co-host. We also have co-hosts Dr. Tim Hayes and Michelle Pichet. We will share with you the wisdom of the first century Aramaic internal process of forgiveness. We offer tools and support five days a week. We will support you in building a solid foundation within yourself to live in pure love in Aramaic, Brachma. Michael is the author of the book, Why Is This Happening to Me Again? For more information about the forgiveness process, please visit www.whyagain.org. And now, welcome to the show, Mind Shifters Radio. Hello and welcome to Mind Shifters Radio. I'm Tim Hayes. I'm your host for the first hour. And today is Thursday, April 6th, 2023. As always, we're grateful to everyone who's joining us here today, whether you're listening live or through the archives, as we spend another couple of hours teaching and supporting people in using some of the most powerful, effective, efficient, and accessible tools I've ever encountered. These tools are available absolutely free through the tireless efforts of Dr. Michael and Jeannie Rice on the website at whyagain.org. If you go to that webpage and click on the two words that say start here in the upper left-hand corner, it will take you to a page where you can download and read Chapter 24 of Dr. Michael Rice's book. His book is titled, Why Is This Happening to Me Again? And that chapter of that book contains a narrative description and explanation of the primary tool in this work. That tool is called the Reality Management Worksheet, sometimes called the Reality Management Wake-Up Sheet. And it's a tool I've been using to great effect for over 18 years to improve the quality of my life and most of my relationships and to turn any negative emotional experience I have into part of the infallible guidance system that each and every one of us has been given. You can also download the actual worksheet process itself. It's a simple PDF file. Click the link, download it, print it off, copy it as often as you'd like, and use it over and over and over again absolutely free. You can also go to your app store and type in the three words, Heartland Aramaic Forgiveness. If you choose to do that, before you're done typing the word forgiveness, you'll see the glowing heart icon. If you tap on that, it will let you download a completely free and private app that contains the Reality Management Worksheet. It also contains an abbreviated version of that worksheet process, and it contains a copy of the Dragon Klingon game, which is a wonderful way to introduce these tools to even younger audiences. We hope people do all of that soon and often because it has a tendency to improve the quality of people's lives the more they use these tools in their lives, actively applying the tools, and because it tends to lead to comments and questions, testimonials and answers. If you have any of those to share with us, please do so. Give us a call at 563-999-3581. Alternatively, you can send us an email. You can email me at tjh at mindshifters-academy.org 
or you can email Jeannie at J-E-A-N-I-E at whyagain.org. That's W-H-Y-A-G-A-I-N dot O-R-G. And if you email us, we will address that comment, question, or answer or testimonial on the Internet show. And then as time allows, send you a note about what day and time we were able to uh, discuss it, and then you can listen back to the archives for the feedback. So we have um, a support group again tonight on Tuesdays and Thursday nights from 6.30 to 9 p.m. Central Time. Uh, we have support group that's available through Zoom. And um, we encourage people to join us and or spread that information around to somebody you think might benefit so you can let anybody who's interested know that these groups are available absolutely free and all of the information you would need to join us is available on the mindshiftersacademy.org website and there's a separate page for the information to log in for Tuesdays and a separate page for Thursdays. mindshiftersacademy.org and it's free if you have internet connection and you have a camera on your phone or computer you can join us and the more the merrier we'd be glad to have you again that's 6.30 to 9 p.m. Central Time both days Tuesdays and Thursdays so we are here at the beginning of another hour with plenty of time to talk. If you have comments or questions or feedback from uh, the first three days of this week, my uh, my plan for today was to begin by reading essay number 87 from the book A Walk in the Physical. by Christian Sundberg. And um, every time I pick this up and think about it, I um, as I scroll through the book, I think, oh, there's one I want to read. But essay number 87 is titled, Taking Change beyond the surface. Again, the short summary here is Christian is a person who, when he was about 30 years old, asked for some spiritual guidance from somebody who wrote a book he really liked, and that teacher said, the real important thing to do is stop asking people outside of you and just develop your own deep meditation practice. So Christian Sundberg did that, and as he did that, he had he recovered a memory that for his first five or six years of life, he had the memory of a pre-life experience and planning to come here and 
arranging so that he would remember some of his experience before he took form in a body and and that he would eventually decide even though most people would think he was crazy he would decide to start sharing that and share his spiritual journey so that's the origins of this book and these essays that are contained in the book it is Christian's belief and experience that he had guidance from the non-physical realm, that he was channeling this, that he was divinely inspired, you might say, to write these different essays, and that there is a format of thinking about life and uh, our our role here and, and how things actually work that goes beyond what he can know in his conscious logical mind. So he he believes this is divinely inspired. And essay number 87 is titled Taking Charge or Taking Change Beyond the Surface. And the essay reads, The events that take place out in our world are far more than they appear to be on the surface. All things take place first in consciousness space, and then in the world of matter. Thus, in order to improve our world, we must first make a change within our consciousness. We cannot simply change our circumstances or our leaders. We cannot simply put new systems into place or enact new laws. The change must occur within us. The change must occur within you. There is no other way. The change that is required is deeply personal. It is not a change just in the forms we work with. It's not a change in the specific ideas, not a change in the identifications or the beliefs, not a change in the human framework. It is not a change just in the contents of the mind. The change that is required is of ourselves, of what we are at the deepest level, beneath all the objects of the physical experience. The objects that we work with, whether they be ideas, identities, beliefs, or systems, these are just the props of our world. And They will all come and go. What lasts is us, the consciousness of each individual who is actually wielding intent and making very real choices every hour of every day. That is the real engine that drives what happens in our world. The physical details and the human systems will naturally work themselves out when we successfully change ourselves. In order to do that, we must consistently work on the very nature of our intent itself. And we must consciously strive to exercise intent that is loving rather than fearful. 
we must bravely seek out our own egoic tendencies, challenge our own beliefs, and truly feel. We must be fully present. We must acknowledge our own weaknesses, take ownership, and do our very best to actually be a more loving presence in the world. We must actually put others before ourselves. The effects of such choices are far greater than they may appear to be on the surface. In the face of all the tribulations of earth, pursuing change can seem to be daunting. When you look inside at yourself and see all of your many imperfections, change can seem to be daunting there too. And yet, in the scope of the big picture, every genuine step toward love is great progress. Every step forward that the soul takes towards actualizing love and overcoming fear is a genuine step forward for the entire universe. This is important to remember when we turn within ourselves in a common moment and seek to be better. The real work is done in the common moment, in seeking to make the more loving, more humble, more freeing, more fearless choice in any given situation, no matter how mundane it may seem on the surface and no matter the earthly objects involved. This is how you take change beyond the surface. You realize that what is the most important part of any of this work, any action you take, According to Christian, the most important part of that is your alignment with your true nature and your intention to extend that true nature in the moment. Your intention to be more loving. So, how does that land with you? What is getting stirred up? How realistic or unrealistic does it seem? The previous essay is titled, Focus Creates Momentum. And this, this work, just like how the last essay is almost exactly like what is talked about in A Course in Miracles, where it says, when you heal, you are never healed alone. Millions yet unborn will benefit from the healing work you do here today. This next essay I'm going to read, essay number 86, is titled, Focus Creates Momentum. And this is almost exactly what Abraham Hicks talks about. The essay reads, What you practice being, you will be. This reality is a system in which you create momentum of interpretation. And over the long term, the reality reinforces back to you a reflection of the momentum you have created. 
um, Dr. Michael Rice has a lecture. It's either on creating consciously or uh, empowered to heal. But in one of these, he he talks about how the quantum potential is outside of us, of our in, infinite potential, and we initiate mind energy that leaves us with a certain vibration, and that vibration reinforces the quantum potential to collapse into from a wave state into a solid matter and appear to us in the way that is in in alignment with or in resonance with what we've chosen. So he uses um, three or four different colored markers, and so the, the red is for anger, and um, I don't know the green is for love, and the blue is for fear, and whatever. And and he just draws this diagram that says what you hold on to and strengthen in your mind energy and send out in the world literally creates how you experience the world that's exactly what this is talking about it's exactly what the abraham hicks talks reflect over and over again you pour your mind energy into a particular pattern of thought you literally send active measurable energy out into the world around you that interacts with the energies around you and if you focus your mind energy on thoughts related to the world is dangerous and i need to be fearful you will start to see more and more situations in your life reflected back to you that are dangerous and that would call you to be more fearful So this essay goes on and says, when you judge that reality is a certain way, it will then display itself back to you that way, not only in the sense that you interpret what you see in that light, but also in the sense that physical events actually tend to happen differently to reinforce your belief. If Michael Rice were hearing this, he would probably be standing up and applauding, saying, yes, that's what we've been teaching for you know, decades in this work. Your mind energy is a powerful force. He likes to quote from the scriptures, the first line of scripture where it says, you know, and the word was made flesh and dwelt among us, or... Um, and he says in the ancient Aramaic, the word, you know, is mind energy. Mind energy becomes organized, becomes matter, becomes your physical experience in life. You are a creative being. What you focus on, you create more of, not just in the way you experience it, but actually in how it shows up in your life. That's what this paragraph is saying. What you practice, you will be. James Allen wrote a book back in the late 18, early 1900s, As a Man Thinketh. It's exactly the same sentiment. This knowledge has been on the planet for thousands of years. What you practice, you will be. This reality is a system in which you create momentum as you interpret things. And over the long term, the reality reinforces back to you a reflection of the momentum you have created. When you judge that reality is a certain way, 
it will then display itself back to you that way. Not only in the sense of how you experience it, in this light, in this coloring of interpretation, but also in the sense that physical events actually tend to happen differently to reinforce your belief. Put simply, to a certain extent, a very real extent in your life, you get what you expect. So what this is saying is, if you were raised in a family where you were taught the world's a dangerous place, or wait... You know, don't get too happy when things go good because the next shoe is going to drop. Or no good deed goes unpunished. Or all of these old adages of negativity. If you're raised in that and you don't change it or correct it, if you add the power of your mind energy to it on a regular basis, it will literally begin to affect the way your life unfolds and the things that you experience. The last paragraph of this essay says, our momentum of interpretation is built up from moment to moment over the course of a lifetime. Each moment, then, is an opportunity to change the course. If Abraham were doing this, Abraham would say, slow it down or take a nap. It's a good way to slow your negative momentum. Go to sleep. After your nap, wake up and then start a more positive direction with your thoughts. But when you have built up a strong, powerful momentum for one set of thoughts, maybe it's unproductive, maybe it's negative, maybe it's hurtful, maybe it's a negative emotional energy, Abraham uses the analogy of, so if you're going 120 miles an hour, you don't want to stop on a dime. You don't want to, you know, run into a brick wall to stop. So you want to gradually slow that momentum. This teaching says the same thing. Our momentum of interpretation is built up from moment to moment over the course of a lifetime. Each moment, then, is an opportunity to change the course. Each moment is an opportunity to redirect our focus to where we prefer. Our direction of focus is powerful. We often forget that as we tend to believe that the external world occurs irrelevant of our interpretation of it. But indeed, we build creative momentum with each moment of our lives. Right now is one of those moments. What momentum are you creating in your life right now? What happens when you keep pouring your mind energy into this outside event is why I'm upset? You, you strengthen and build more momentum for that. That's all there is to it. What happens if you pour a lot of mind energy into the idea that there is evil in the world outside of me. You begin to see and experience more and more evil in the world outside of you. Essay number 84 in this book is titled Evil as Ignorance to Love. And the essay reads, 
there is only love. Though many of us are temporarily acting from the darkness of an experience of lack of love, all beings at their core are the light of source. All beings at their core are light, are love, are the energy of creation expressing. All beings are of love. All beings desire it. All beings are called to it, and it is the ultimate nature of capital L light within all of us. Sometimes the individual spirit experiences the darkness as a temporary sojourn, even though the spirit's true loving nature remains unchanged, the spirit's local personality can, through its own experience of being distant from love, it can fall into a vibration that is experienced as being far from and far different from its native light. From that place, the personality can make decisions which challenge others. That darkness is not some separate power or authority. That darkness is merely the natural result of real consciousness exercising imperfect intent when it is experiencing distance from the native energy of love. In that sense, there is no evil. The human ego often rejects the idea that there is no ego and no evil, in part because our collective consciousness has grown within a history and an environment in which it was meaningful to identify one's enemy. But at the most fundamental level, there is no enemy. Ultimately, you have no enemies. Even the most heinous of crimes are acts committed from a place of a lack of love rather than one of intrinsic evil. The evildoer needs love. Love is the answer. This does not mean that we need to accept acts of cruelty or that we should stand by when intervention is required. It simply means that even as we do intervene, we can recognize that the one we intervene against is not a foe, but in fact is another embodiment of the light making its way with free will through a very challenging world. Evil is ignorance to the presence of love. Or evil is perceived separation from love. And having experienced that ourselves, can we not have understanding for those who seek to do us harm? Haven't you at some point or another in time wished harm on somebody else? And probably for the most part, if you're listening to a, uh, an Internet show like this, 
you've been able to refrain or minimize how much you acted out negatively against somebody. But the fact that you had the impulse and the strong thought meant you in in those moments were separated from your experience of love. You weren't focused on your true nature. And this, this, again, just echoes so strongly the work of Dr. Michael Rice. And in that lecture, whether it's on creating consciously, I think it's on creating consciously, where he shows the waves of energy leaving you and collapsing the quantum potential, he talks about how, so there's a person out here who has um, had some trauma in their life, but they've never wanted to abuse anybody else. And yet, if in the mind energy of the collective, all of us think every time we hear a news story about somebody who's hurt a child, we all get enraged and think we want to go beat up and punish and kill that abuser, then we send out all this negative energy, and and the field of energy on the planet becomes one that's got more negative energy in it, and it resonates more strongly in this one person who, left to his or her own devices, would never be motivated to do violence or abuse to another person, but all of a sudden the energy that's in them is getting resonated by the field and stronger and stronger. At the very least, they're going to have more difficulty refraining from doing abuse to somebody else. It's exactly the same, Michael says in that lecture. We don't want these people who have done abuse to children or other people. We don't want them out free in the community, but we don't want to torture them and beat them up. We don't want to lock them up in a place that's abusive. We want to lock them up in a place that's safe, keeps them safe from other people and themselves, and provides a loving, supportive atmosphere in which if that person chooses to, he or she can heal find the truth of their own nature, choose for love, dismantle the energies from the traumas that were done to them in childhood, etc. It is important to understand that every time we make a choice, there are consequences. And so, a work like this, or a work like A Course in Miracles or Way of Mastery, will call us to awaken to the power of our choice. And A Course in Miracles would say, choose for love. Choose again, and choose for love. Choose love over fear. That's the same message in this book over and over and over again. It's the same message when Dr. Michael Rice does a workshop and he has his big whiteboard and on the left side he writes all these words related to love and your true nature and on the right side he writes all these words that people shout out when they, they talk about the mental emotional state they were in when they did something that they now regret doing. So he's got the love or the being list of being qualities on on the left side and a list of the anger, fear, hurt, resentment or the non-being qualities on the right side of the board. It's exactly the same message. Your true nature is the love. All of the 
attributes and words and descriptors from the left side of the board. What you've been programmed to from other wounded people who had forgotten or were acting from a place where they had forgotten their true nature is everything on the right side of the board. And our job is to identify those energies that we might carry that would have us placed on the right side of the board, which is in any kind of hostility or fear or tension or upset or sadness or grief, and actively apply tools to dismantle that energy and restore our awareness to the fact that our true nature is the loving energy the light of creation expressing in form, the compassion, the joy, the bliss, the flow of life that we call creation, that's our true nature. And if we're willing to engage that two-prong approach where we take responsibility for and actively work to dismantle the negative energies within us and restore our awareness to the truth of our, our nature, the loving positive energy of creation and keep our conscious awareness focused on that moment to moment and then act from that if we do that our lives will get better beyond words the last essay I'll offer here is a perspective on suffering the essay reads as a human it can be difficult to understand suffering. But from the greater perspective of the spirit, the potential to suffer and even the actual suffering is greatly worth the trouble, though it's never technically required to suffer. What is can be more when it through you, through a human being, a spiritual being having a physical experience, when it, through you, can experience specific contrast, even when it can experience fully what it doesn't like, because this better helps define the opposite. Creation as a process utilizes definition. This is it. This is that. This is that. That is this. Separate from that, over here, that's over there. This is up. This is down. Creation utilizes definition, and free will requires a context. What that means is if everything is the same and everything is equal, it doesn't matter what you choose, so there's no point to having free will. So the free will needs a context, and we create that context by defining we like this, we don't like that. We're going to label that good and that less good, or that bad, or that wrong and that right. And then once we have that definition, now it makes some sense to choose one over the other, or at least choose a preference for one over the other. The essay goes on and says, The spirit is a fundamentally joyful state, and in that state it decides in all its eternal and invincible power to facilitate new experiences for itself 
so that it can integrate them. In so doing, it becomes even more. It expands the frontier of all experience and it adds the possibility of even more joy. Sometimes in that process, the soul must seemingly be tried to its very limits. But so it is in creation that ever grows. Creation is always growing and expanding as it becomes more and more. For if it did not, it would become stagnant. It would not become more. What is, is what is and can't be anything else. So if it wishes to increase its scope, it actually needs to also be that there are challenging things, painful and constraining things. Even when those challenges have been integrated, it is the what isness of of life that expands in due measure and the nature of love and joy and creation grows with it. Suffering is also meaningful in another way. It serves as the feedback and counter-pressure that is sometimes necessary to drive the individual consciousness to personally grow and grow its quality of intent toward love. Many are driven to spiritual growth through suffering. While that may be incomprehensible to the human ego, to the spirit that exists in eternity, and to the one who sincerely wishes to grow in eternal love and fearlessness, such a price is actually accepted with gratitude. There will come a time someday when you will be able to look back at your own suffering and see its greater context. Until then, you may choose to let yourself feel what you feel and let go of your judgments about it. Take heart, for your true nature always remains unharmed and invincible, no matter how much pain your local body may feel or how dark your human life may seem. The source of all creation is always, always with you. Be bountifully hopeful in your true invincible nature and in your inseverable unity with source, for there is always hope through what you actually are beneath this rather convincing physical experience. It is part of our physical experience that we become convinced that this is all we are. And in that experience, we generate ups and downs, happiness and sadness, frustrations and angers and fears and even suffering. And it is not our true nature, but it is something that our true nature can use to expand and grow. So, our call-in number is 563-999-3581. We have about 20 minutes left in our first hour to take your comments or questions. There are 
nine or ten callers, depending upon what time you look at the switchboard. So we have plenty of people on the call and plenty of time for a comment, a question, an answer, or a testimonial. So let us know how this is landing for you. 563-999-3581. Call that number, press 1, and let us know your thoughts. Area code 541. Hopefully you are in the air. Yes, I am on the air. <laughs> this is Celinda. Welcome. Thank you. What was that second essay I got in on the program late? What was the second essay you read? I got 84, but the one right after. You got what? I got Say again, essay please. You got what? The essay 84. All right. Before that, I was... I was reading uh, Focus Creates Momentum, which is 86. Oh, good. Thank you. And 87, which is taking change below the surface. Good. Perfect. Thank you. Um, I just had one short comment uh, yesterday when I think you were talking with Magda, I believe, or Susan. And I am studying Spanish right now. And the Spanish express expression for I am right is tengo razón, which is I have the reason. <laughs> and it made me laugh because Michael Rice says um, we have to be out of our minds and reason um, is for, from the left brain. And I thought that was pretty pretty fundamentally profound as a, a short statement that um, I'm right because I have the reason. I'm in the right mind. You're in the wrong mind. I just thought I'd share that because it struck me so profoundly. Well, and of course, in this work, if you're just dealing with uh, how do you make the car move or how do you fix the airplane so it can fly or... You know, how do you fix the cell phone so you can receive calls? And just relating to the physical realm, that's an important thing. Let's get it right. Right. Let's measure how right. it works. Let's let's take t- take into account the consequences that are likely to happen for this choice of behavior or action, and the consequences that are likely to happen for that choice or behavior. And yet, in the psychological realm or the spiritual realm. That is an absolute trap, and what, it's what Michael Rice calls the number one pseudo-solution of the non-being mind. I'm going to figure it out. Right. And so, you know, um, our solution for getting out of the trap of figuring it out is to put the conscious logical mind on the shelf for a while cancel everything the conscious logical mind would tell us it wants or thinks has to happen for it to be happy and ask to be shown something else. Not demand an answer, not, not, you know, stomp our feet and scream and throw a tantrum, but put ourselves in an open allowing state, what Rilke would call questioning, to learn to live in the question. And for most of us, that's a real stretch it is not comfortable or familiar and there are a variety of reasons for that that vary as much as there are people that experience it but 
one of the more common ones is that we've been trained into the idea that if we don't focus on what's right and get it right, we get punished. Exactly. Sometimes severely, so much that we are, you know, um, interpreting that this is a survival level issue. And that's one right. of the dynamics that that contributes to a power person download in our lives. And so if I have a history of, of being trained and taught and experienced that if I do what somebody else says is right, I get rewarded or at least ignored. And if I do what somebody thinks is wrong, I get attacked or punished or maybe even life-threatening consequences. You better believe it's going to be hard for me to say I give up my need to be right. That's very helpful for me because of my upbringing. And uh, that's one of the things I'm beginning to see for myself and... uh, Seeing is the beginning of change for me. Well, I think that statement is true for everyone. I mean, we can't really change something that we don't even see clearly or we don't even know needs to be changed. So, I remember Wayne Dyer's book of um, When I Believe It, I Will See It. That, I never read the book, but that title really caught my attention, and I haven't forgotten that, except in my stress moments when I forget it. Yeah, that is um, basically what we were just reading, that uh, what we send out, what we intend, what we pour our mind energy into literally creates our experience of life. And this book took it even further, as, as Abraham does, and says it starts to impact what it is that shows up in our lives. It's such a powerful energetic force that, as Michael Rice would say, through the law of resonance, it actually changes what collapses from the quantum soup into our experience of life. One of the things I really loved about the way of mastery is the expression, oh, look what I've created here as being a wonder and an expression of the power of our creativity, regardless of whether it's negative or positive. Um, Well, regardless of whether I interpret it as negative or positive, right? It is just a creation. It is just a creation until it's labeled. It isn't good or bad, right or wrong. It's just a creation. It's the flow of life. Right. And uh, trying to remember that all events are neutral especially in in the midst of the negative flow that I've interpreted as negative. So anyway, I just I'm just really grateful for all of these all of these sharings that have come up uh over these past 4 years. I just feel like my whole life is is being turned um inside out in a very wonderful way. So thank you. Thank well, uh, thank us all. Yep, absolutely. You're quite welcome and deserving. Any other comments? Uh, There was one other expression that I've been meaning to share for a while. I ran across an expression that 
expectations are premeditated resentment. And I got to thinking about that, and I found there was a whole chain. Like, I'm right was a, a premeditated judgment, and judgment is a premeditated expectation, and expectation is a premeditated resentment, and resentment is a premeditated punishment, and punishment is a premeditated hell. And I just know that I've been looking at that and thinking about that and all of the ramifications and the vibrations from it all. And so that's just a little mantra that helps me to, if I get stuck. All right. All right, indeed. I'm glad it helps you. Me too. All right. And Anything else you want to share? No, that's it. I feel okay. very happy today. All right. Blessings. I'll mute you so you can listen to the rest of the show. And we've got about 10 minutes left before hopefully Michael and or Jeannie joins us. 563-999-3581. Call that number. Press 1 on your phone. Let us know how this lands with you. And or make a suggestion about another book or author or podcast or teacher that we should be exploring that's in line with the work we're already doing. The work, again, summarized as working to take closer to 100% responsibility for every experience we create, especially our emotional states. That is one quick way to summarize this work, moving to be able to take 100% responsibility for every emotion we create and experience. And my personal experience in life is that my life quality grows by leaps and bounds every little step I take toward that 100% responsibility for whatever emotions I experience. And you can take that as far as you want to take it. Uh, teaching like this that we're reading today says it goes beyond just the creation of your emotion. It goes into actually creating what shows up in your life. And it doesn't happen overnight. You have uh, a lifetime of your own, and you've got the inherited mind energy of your bloodline, which has been poured into the process of creation which has led to everything you've experienced in your life so far and it can stay the same and you can just keep pouring mind energy into it or you can make a change and you can make a change at that surface level over time it will make a fundamental change in your actual experience of life in the events that show up in your life And that is, for some, just a real tough pill to swallow because they say, oh, you say, I'm to blame for this and that. And we try to breathe and soften and comfort those people and say, this is not about blame. 
this is about the tool of responsibility. This is about being able to identify what is it in my life that I have any control over and how can I use those things that I have any control over to act differently, to interact differently with the flow of life so that fundamentally responsibility becomes a tool. It's a tool I can pick up and use in my life so that I now have the ability to respond differently the next time a similar situation arises. And in that in that phrasing, in that perspective, there's nothing about blame. It's only about being able to identify to a greater and greater degree what is it that I actually have control over and how can I change based on what I have control over the energy I'm adding to this experience of life or the flow of creation and then watch and see if I prefer the consequences once I've changed that contribution, my contribution to the flow of creative energy. It isn't about blame. It's about acknowledging what is it I actually have any control over. And if I don't like my experience, if I don't like the events unfolding and or my interpretation and experience of them, if I focus my energy, my mind energy on those things I actually have control over, now I've got something that I can use to make a difference in my experience of life. And this isn't saying that the five-year-old who has you know, uh, physically debilitating arthritis caused his or her arthritis. This isn't saying that the person who has, you know, stage one, two, three, or four cancer is causing their cancer. Some people do. Some people say that stuff. That's not what we're saying. We're saying in the experience of life at the physical realm, we have access to the mind energy. We have the ability to choose the focus of our conscious awareness each moment and our choice of where and how we focus our conscious awareness in each moment is the prime creative force for our experience of life in that moment and if we wake up to that then we've got something we can intervene with we can change one of the primary factors in our experience of life and change it and see if we like the consequences. If we don't like the consequences, change it again and see if we like those consequences. Odd infinitum, just on and on, because this thing we call life is a creative process. This thing we call life is not an event it is not a single action. It is the flow of creative energy expressing in form. And so it's 
always useful to recognize what is our part in what's unfolding and how might we change it if we don't like it and how might we just watch for the consequences of our last change so that we can evaluate, do we prefer that, and constantly engage that process, hopefully to our own benefit. Waking up more and more each day to our role as creator of our experience. Many people uh, would do well just to move from the thought that they are 100% a victim into uh, the thought that they are an active participant. Some people have a a very hard time jumping from I am a victim of this or that to I am creating my experience of life. So perhaps they can do better, perhaps it would be more tolerable to say, I'll move from thoughts that I'm a victim to thoughts that I'm a participant in a process. Whatever works, whatever helps you get there, um, we are here to try and support that, your growth, your ability to create a more loving, joyful, preferable life, compassionate, bliss-filled, gratitude-based experience of life. And if there's something we can do to support you in that, please let us know. You can email me at tjh at mindshifters-academy.org or you can email Jeannie at j-e-a-n-i-e at yagain.org and we'd be happy to hear from you. We're approaching the end of our first hour today. I will remind us all that there is a support group tonight as there are most Tuesday and Thursday nights from 6.30 to 9 p.m. Central Time. And I will remind you that all the information you would need to join us is there at mindshiftersacademy.org website. And we'd be happy to have you join us or spread the information along to somebody you think might benefit from joining us. Direct them to the mindshiftersacademy.org website and let them know that the the support groups happen from 6.30 to 9 p.m. Central on Tuesday and Thursday nights. We are at, if not there, we're about a minute away from the end of our first hour. I thank you all for listening. I will remind us all that we come from love. We're made of the stuff we call love. We actually are love, light, the force of creation expressing in form, and everything else is false and made up. Even our thoughts about that truth are made up. So since you're making up your thoughts about life and your meaning for life and your reality, choose the thoughts and and beliefs and experiences that make you feel good create a life you love that might be the uh, 
the, the motto or the sign-off I use um, in the near future if I start a new blog. Welcome, Jeannie Rice. Thank you, Dr. Tim. Can you hear me okay? Because it's bubbling on my end. Maybe I need to dial back in. Well, I can hear you fine. Okay. Okay, good. Do you, do you have noise <laughs> on your you. end? Yeah, it's like when you're talking or like when the recording talked, it was like blah, 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 like it was underwater. So I just wanted to make sure it wasn't it's maybe yep, just my I'm, earpieces. But. Yep, I'm hearing you fine. So have a wonderful show. Thank you. So welcome, everybody, to the second hour of Mindshifters Radio, and today is Thursday, April the 6th, 2023, and our call-in number is 563-999-3581, and press 1, and that puts you in queue to talk to us, and we would love to hear your comments and questions, because that makes this your show. Um, Okay. I just got a text from Susan. She could hear me fine, too. So awesome. Thank you. I appreciate the hut. And uh, I see your hand up, but I'm not sure if it's left over from Dr. Tim, so I'm going to turn your microphone on. Hi, Susan. Hi. It isn't left over. I didn't actually dial in on Dr. Tim's today. How was it yesterday? It was absolutely beautiful. Um, I was so glad the weather changed because they had been talking about thunderstorms. Stayed overcast, but it was like 84 degrees. It's like, what happened? Whoa. We just totally skipped spring. We went straight into hot summer. But um, Michael did the service, did a wonderful job. It was absolutely beautiful. And in part of it, he stopped and he asked if anybody wanted to share a story or something about Dad. And mm-hmm. I think everyone, all of the uh, my brothers and their wives and and. Uh, I said a little bit, and then a bunch of my nieces and nephews jumped in and said stuff. So it was like everybody sharing little stories about Dad. So it was awesome. And um, had probably, I don't know, 60, 75 people at the uh, grave site, and probably 90% of those were um, relatives. <laughs> but uh, it's a big family. And uh, actually Joe Bryson came up, which I thought was really sweet. Um, just to support us, and he videoed part of it or all of it. So, uh, you know, hopefully we'll have that out to share. And Michael did the Lord's Prayer from the Aramaic for all mm-hmm. of my relatives, ask him for copies of that. So, you know, it uh, touched on a different level for some of their beliefs, but everybody loved it. And Oh, boy. Mm. Yeah, and it was really nice, and we had so much food. So everybody gathered back over at Dad's house there at the farm and and just shared time eating and talking and, you know, walking around. And then uh, we had to go to the bank to do some stuff on the farm account. While it's hard to get all both of my brothers and myself at the farm at the same time. So since we were there, we just took advantage of it and went over to handle some of the legal details while we were all together. And while we were doing that, then Michael and Ryan and, Ryan's friend dug up the blueberry bushes and we brought them back here to replant them because they were they're very prolific blueberry bushes wow. for the last two years I've not been able to be over there to help pick and everything and so basically the birds and rabbits have been eating them so we brought them back here and are going to replant those in our garden up here so great it was just a be- yeah it was just a beautiful day and uh, you know a lot of uh, a lot of sharing and just 
you know, it was awesome. Be sort of, well, a relief, but also how does it feel to come back to reality, <laughs> come back to your life? Yeah, oh. uh, we were just <laughs> talking just a minute ago that we thought we would go out to dinner tonight just to let somebody else do the cooking and just kind of oh, relax nice. and treat ourselves. Mm-hmm. So I think that's what we're going to do tonight. We don't have Aria today. And, uh, oh, good. Yeah. And she's wow. out of school tomorrow, so we'll have her all day tomorrow, so she'll keep us busy. <laughs> she sure will, yeah. Yeah. Well, welcome and it was so back. funny. It, thank you. It was really cute, you know, um, the innocent minds of children. Um, she came up, and, of course, me and my brothers and sp- our spouses were all sitting on the very front row in front of the coffin. And uh, she came up and sat on my lap, and she looked up at me, and she goes, oh, tears and kind of touched my cheek. And she says, I'm going to get you something. And she hopped down and she went back to where her mom was. And she came back up. She had these little sandals on yesterday that smell like strawberries. I mean, I don't know how they do that. But she came up and handed me one of her shoes. You know, so in her mind it was like, this is something really precious and something awesome, and I'm going to give it to you to make you feel better. (laughs) So I thought that was, yeah, I thought it was really sweet. very sweet. Yeah. Uh, yeah, but it was it was all good. They did the military, you know, part. They blew taps and folded the flag. Wow. And being the oldest child, um, they presented it to me. And uh, wow, yeah. So it was it was just really a sweet service. And um, I'm glad. Yeah. How long did it last? Um, maybe an hour all total. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, between everybody sharing. And one of my cousins, I had asked her to sing uh, Amazing Grace and How Great They Are. So after Michael's, you know, they did the military part first. And then mm-hmm. Michael did the service. And, and in the middle of that, he had everybody sharing. And then once he completed it, then my cousin sang. And so then that was mm, nice. Uh, yeah, so it was really nice. But. Well, anyway, it's, you know, it's a... Uh, a relief that that part is over. Um, I've mm-hmm. spent all morning calling, like, you know, trying to get Dad's life insurance policy. I had to send him the death certificates, which I didn't get until yesterday at the funeral. And um, so I've been on the phone a lot this morning trying to get some ducks in a row. I don't know when it'll complete. It's like sometimes the bureaucracy takes forever. And, you know, I know. The way Isn't it amazing? Things. How much do you have to do just to die? <laughs> <laughs> or everybody else has to do after you do. <laughs> right. Right. But, yeah, but it was absolutely beautiful. Michael did an awesome job. Oh, and everybody, I mean, all my cousins and everybody kept coming up and just saying, you know, how they really, it touched them and they really enjoyed it. So mm, wonderful. He did great. Yeah. And he's joined Good. us now. So welcome, Michael. <laughs> Thank you, dear heart. Delighted to be here, and yes, yesterday was a really awesome and a sweet day, bittersweet, but um, it was uh, an honor to have uh, facilitated the service, Mm. and Jeannie and her family had written some things to say, you know, from their point of view, and when she gave me that, it was just like, well, okay, let's see what else we're supposed to do. And it was just so clear. It's like, 
do the Aramaic Lord's Prayer. Mm. And so I ran that by genies that okay with you and said, of course so so it just all fit really sweetly we ended the service so you spoke it in aramaic yes i did i explained it a little bit i explained the set a trap for god and uh then did the english um not translation but how would it translate for today's world? So I shared that with them, and then I invited them to join Yeshua and uh, Dad by the Sea of Galilee and imagine, close your eyes. You know, when we talked about the passages in John where Yeshua precedes his conversation about the, the what they call the Lord's Prayer with, you know, be quiet, go into the silence. You're going to do alms, be quiet. Don't tell anybody. You've got to go into the silence. You got to do it, you know, and then, you know, his explanation of don't be like the, the, you know, the loud mouse who go out there and have to have everybody hear them do their prayer, get, get quiet. And so it just, you know, sort of all fit together to go, okay, so now let's go into the mm-hmm. silence and let's imagine being transported to the Sea of Galilee. And uh, there's dad standing beside Yeshua and uh, let's mm-hmm. let, let my voice fade and hear his voice speak and I explained a little bit about how the Aramaic language is, is um, based in physics not men's minds and uh, then we did it in Aramaic and uh, it's just a sweet space ah that's a gorgeous image it was a sweet space so that was our day yesterday and it was long and it was intense and uh, getting quiet time and actually tonight we're going to go treat ourselves to a quiet dinner just to unwind <laughs> Mm, I bet. That's so I got, good. got some blueberry bushes to plant from the farm. Been out running mm. around this morning getting getting some uh, some amendments to make the soil more acidic for those bushes before we plant them. And uh, so I consume my morning and this afternoon. We're just going to get quiet and take care of ourselves. Great. Well, thanks for doing the radio yes. show in the middle of all that. Well, this is our life. This is our conversation. You know, it's uh, the opportunity to speak it and go live it is um, deepens and deepens the experience. So this is where our commitment is. So what's happening in your world? Well, you said two or three things. I can remember two but I know there was a third one about Michael. You told me the starfish story, and that was the clincher. We have felt so helpless about the situation in the world with homeless, not to mention climate change and, you know, bipartisan and partisan arguments and ugliness and all sorts of things. We have felt rather, you know, as if, well, where do we begin? We have to begin right where we are. You told that starfish story, and so Michael is our one starfish. So we had a talk with him. Oh, the second thing you said, it's a a good idea. Tim Hayes had mentioned doing this, get Tim on the conversation, Tim Bingham. And Tim said, all right, well, I'll join you in discussing the situation. And between the two of us, we decided an arrangement whereby Michael could stay here indefinitely, provided 
he doesn't keep getting his Social Security insurance, which is an additional $300 above the 500 or 550 he gets for his regular Social Security. He is supposed to be fully homeless to warrant or deserve getting that second check. And he just got one of those checks, but he doesn't know if he's going to continue. So we have a little leeway. If he if they stop the check because he is still living here, he will have to decide whether he wants to keep the check and move out or stay here and lose the check. If right. he loses the check, it means that he has no income or very, very little. But he has a place to stay, and our deal with him is, I said, okay, you're going to be a tenant. That was another thing you said. You don't have to be buddies. He's a tenant. Just a little shift in how we look at him has helped us so much. So he's now a tenant, and I said, we don't have to. I mean, we haven't been talking. We don't have dialogues. And he said, well, I have nothing to say. That was his answer is, what can I say? And, I, I, you know, there there are lots of things we could say together in a dialogue, but that doesn't seem to be on his mind or in his agenda at all right now. So he doesn't have anything to say. So we said, all right, you can come and go. We'll come and go. But we will going to ask you to do pay rent to us in the form of labor, yard work, garden work, front and back, more serious uh, vacuuming, not just a little slapdash around the edges, which has been great, but it hasn't really come up to my rather modest standard. I said, we won't ask you to clean bathrooms, but if you would wash the kitchen floor every couple of weeks. And he said, oh, I can do all those things. And I said, I'll make you a list. And I did, and he has the list. And I said, and we would be freed up to go away. We want to visit my daughter, and we wouldn't have to hire a house sitter. We want you to get acquainted with our animals and be able to live upstairs maybe, not in – we haven't worked that out. We don't want him in the bedroom. That was Tim's thing. But to know the the habits of the kitties so he can take care of them and – I said, and you train us about taking care of your dog, so you'd be freer to go out and do gigs, and he doesn't want to do that. So that's one of the resistances is he feels he has to have have the dog with him. So going on a gig means bringing all this equipment, amplifiers, microphones, uh, instruments, and the dog in a carriage, and that's a deterrent for a man of 68. He has a bad back, and... He says, that's one of the reasons I don't have gigs is it's just too much trouble. If it's raining out, I'll cancel and all this stuff. And so we're up against an interesting situation. But at the moment, he says, well, I feel safe here. I just feel safe here. And that's his goal, I think, is to feel safe. And I said, well, I hope it'll sort of stiff up your self-esteem if you're earning that by doing stuff in the house. It would certainly help us. It's a good good arrangement all around and he said oh yes you know and maybe now that the weather's warm I'll feel like going out and getting some jobs we're still up in the air but we've got some space uh if he doesn't get a check he'll stay here indefinitely I guess and if he does get a check he'll decide 
do I want the check or do I want to stay here without the check? So, and you had also made another suggestion that you sent me in in a text. Um, And I don't remember it. I could look it up. But in any case, whatever you said, pushed the logs out of the way for a period of time. And I wanted to thank you for that because we've been kind of stuck. Well, that's awesome. Delighted. Glad to be here of support. Um, two, two things, I mean, in terms of what you raised, would you like to go into the arena of dealing with him or would you like to go into the arena of the opportunities it's giving you to come out of denial? Oh, well, I, coming out of denial would be a good thing. What did I do? <laughs> I don't even know what I did. <laughs> Well, it's not what you did, but your words indicate that there's still some denial when you say, you know, or definition of denial when I think or speak as of something outside of me is the cause of what's moving in me. I'm in denial, and to do that, I have to dissociate from something. And whenever I dissociate from something, there's going to be some form of trauma or pain. That's why I'm dissociating from it. So notice that um, you spoke about you were helpless in dealing with him. And I don't, I don't remember, you could go back and re-listen to get the exact words, but it was, was pretty clear that what was moving in you in the way of helplessness was about him. And my offering would be, no, this is your opportunity to heal some helplessness, to forgive that, that helpless energy. And, you know, a good question to ask yourself is, how does it look like my life? How often in my life do I set things up so that I get to experience this? my thought disorders that produce this feeling that I call helplessness. Of course, helplessness is more of a thought than a feeling, but you know, it sort of ties together. Well, I'm drawing deep breaths because, of course, you're right on because our whole second issue is grandson in the middle, my middle grandson, Jacob, who is belligerently expecting money from us, and I don't, Tim Hayes said a a wonderful thing at the very end of his hour. He said, do we want, if I can dredge up in my memory what exactly he said, something like, let us all see ourselves as participants in this process rather than victims. And um, my grandson sees himself as a victim of everything, the world, the economy, his stingy grandparents, and he sees himself as a victim. And I'm seeing him see himself this way, and I feel completely hogtied, helpless. So, yeah. So how often have you seeing yourself as a victim. That might be a good worksheet topic for you. And or how often have you found yourself being guilty or afraid or hogtied over someone else's predicament as though it's quote unquote your fault, which of course he's sounds like he's doing his best to make you know that it's your fault. And oh, of course, definitely. I, you know, I would certainly take I'd come on that conversation totally from the other end. Excuse me, kid. You're getting school. You're getting a house. You're getting your, your car. You're getting, we've been paying for your cat food and probably your weed. What are you talking about? We're stingy. Like, I'll show you what stingy is. <laughs> that would tend to be mine, and that would be my issue. But it would be just like, well, you know, if you don't appreciate it, then 
I think we can just let it go and you know and you know do what you need to do. Dad, Michael, this is but that but that thing of being to blame. Yeah, I see a mind shifter in here. Can you form one? Because if you don't, I'm going to. But it's in very rough form at the moment. Well, what's the rough form you have for it? It's safe and healing for me to take a stand without guilt and do what I know is right within myself. Perfect. I'd add one word to it. Okay. Before the word stand, I'd put the word unpopular. Oh. Because you are going to be even less popular if you take that stand than if you keep, and I suspect that he knows how to keep pushing your buttons so that you don't take that stand. You know, Michael, this is just so ironic. I am the only person who is still talking to him. His mother has blocked him because he's so belligerent. His father barely talks to him. And when he does, it's because his father wants some kind of reassurance that he's a good dad. You know, it all comes back to him. And my thing has been to hold a loving space. And I guess I've misinterpreted that in some ways. I have held a loving space and done my breathing. Uh, Yesterday I was at the dentist and they took out a big tooth. And I was lying there, tense, 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 with a jackhammer in my mouth. And I thought, take a breath. Let it go. Let them do their job. Just relax. Let it go. And I was able to relax for for moments at a time, and then I'd find I was all tensed up again. It wasn't so bad. You know, having a tooth pulled is like nothing compared to worrying about my grandson. It was, I, and I was comparing the two. I could take two teeth out, or 20, compared to how I fussed over my grandson, and I have fussed over Michael downstairs. So what is this? Um and it goes back my, to my rambling. What? Go ahead. You're right on track. You're in process. When and my son in law. Like... When my son in law first got, got to know us, he mm-hmm. told my daughter that I was an untrustworthy bitch. And since he was such a bright, attractive person, I believed him. I thought, God, he sees something that I've. I'm not sure I knew was there. He must be right. And it took a long time to come around to the idea that it was his problem, not mine. It's still going on. It's still going on with Jacob. And and what were you going to say? Recognize that it's classic with alcoholics. They, As I said yesterday, they bring everybody out. So it sounds like he's wrong everybody out but you. And he's on the verge of you saying... No, I'm wrung out. That's enough. And and what usually happens with family members and friends and such is they just disappear. That's mm-hmm. pretty classic and standard until the alcoholic or the drug addict is alone, hopeless and helpless, and either destroys themselves by driving deeper into the drugs and alcohol or wakes up and goes, hmm, I've alienated everybody. I'm here by myself. Maybe I have a problem. And, of course, if they happen to run into somebody who's in, say, the AA program or NA, they'll have somebody who will reinforce that and stand as a space for their healing. But 
you know, being, holding a loving space doesn't mean you have to accept a baseball bat to your head. Cancel the thought. I understand that, but I've been doing it. And, he, no. you know, he does like to talk to me, and he's civil with me most of the time, and he says, I'm the only, only person, you're the only person I can talk to, and I'm thinking he's buttering me up so he can keep this open. I have to stop it. I have to stop it. I would support you because, as I said yesterday, again, the longer it takes to learn the lesson, the tougher the lesson is. And certainly this would be a tough place to pull out. Mm-hmm. And a year from now or two years from now, you know, three years from now he'll be finished school, I suspect, unless when he finishes school you follow through and go, I'm not taking your sob story anymore, you're on your own. But three years from now, if he's still hounding you and still, you know, uh, receiving from you and still dissing you for it and beating up on you for it, it'll be even tougher for him to learn the lesson he's going to learn. Mm-hmm. But, you know, the alcoholic has to hit the bottom. And deceit is the mode of operation of the alcoholic mind. And, you know, they can make up anything out of nothing and be pretty convincing about it. So my offering to be to you would be, you know, Holding that space of love, I think, is the biggest gift you can give him, but you're also allowed to hold that space from a distance. You don't have to stand there and be beat for it. (sighs) Breathing? Yeah, I'm trying to find a text where he, you know, says, I know you guys are just watching for when I bottom out and you're forcing me to bottom out and be homeless and suicidal. You're, you're setting this up for me. And I'm trying to not do that. That's the the classic alcoholic conversation. You're doing it to me. I have nothing to do with my life. I'm not responsible. And he, I mean, that's as classic as it gets. He insists that he's sober and his girlfriend can testify. And I have no way of, knowing whether he's sober or not. Well, there is a thing called so, a dry drunk, and that is the yeah, alcoholic stops drinking, but it doesn't change the underlying personality games that are going on until that work okay, is done. Least, you know, yeah. they'll still function as though they're an alcoholic, even if they're not drinking. Mm-hmm. That's what's happening then. If I said, look, I'll, I'll believe you if you say you're sober. Your mom says you're not. Your brother says you're not. I have no, we have no way of knowing. Perhaps you're sober. I want to trust you. So I'm going to dare to trust you, and let's go from here. So let's not talk about this anymore. But it's not. You're right. Whatever he's doing, he's still like a drunk. Yeah. So yeah, anyway, that's very helpful, Michael. It's horrible. And um, Tim's readings are so wonderful. He's talking about we get this kind of challenge on the earth in order to grow so we're ready to be free again. And we'll be all the freer when we drop the body and all this stuff. This is Christian Sundberg's stuff. And I'm thinking one of the things you have to do throughout this is allow and observe, as you've taught us, and wish well, keep a loving space, do your own work, and otherwise you can't do anything. 
That's the helplessness. I cannot do anything for that boy. Well, actually, you can. You can very clearly and actively hold the space of love and hold him accountable. That's the tough part. Because he's going to pull out all the stops. He does. And it's like being whipped and whipped and whipped and whipped. And I just hate it. Well, then it sounds like it's time for you to speak up for yourself. You know, my my offering would be, you know, perhaps one warning, one more warning, and that's it. It's like, here's the right, maybe even put it in a letter to him. Here's the riot act. You abuse, you cajole, you curse, you da-da-da-da-da, and I'm just not going to take it anymore. I'm here to support you. I care for you, but I'm going to start loving you from a distance, and that means a distance from my bank account, too. And you're going to have to do what you do, and you can blame me and scream at me and do all that, but I'm, I'm like everybody else in your life. I'm going to cut it off because sooner or later, you're going to have to wake up and take responsibility. And again, he may follow through with that commitment to do suicide. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that's, that's uh, the risk that you run by allowing people to be responsible. You know, it's kind of like you think about how many people in this world blame God. Oh, no, God took him. God did this. God did that. God, 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 God. Why does God allow? It's like, no, you're yeah. given free will and you get to do what you want. And, you know, God is always there for support and assistance when you're ready for it. But if you're not ready and you're going to keep playing the game on your own, then you keep playing the game on your own. And then you have to be responsible. And responsibility is a tough thing in this world. Tough thing. And if you read that riot act to him, I, I think you could do that very nicely in a letter, but very firmly, hold him accountable, mm-hmm. and then let him know that this is the last time I'm going to say this. And if you continue to violate me, and my husband, then we're going to just step away like everybody else has done. And maybe you'll get the, the, finally get the message that you're involved in your life and this is about you. It's not about me. I've done enough and I give. You know, that's where I would tend to go with it because it's not helping him just to keep feeding his addiction, whether he's doing yeah. alcohol or not. You know, the other thing the alcoholics addicted to control yeah. Whether drinking or, My, or not. The only kink in all of this is that I tell myself he is the way he is because he's been abused and he is mentally ill. How would I treat yes. a mentally ill person? So you're saying don't treat him any differently than you would any other responsible person. Is that true? Well, if I were... In front of a mentally ill person, I would certainly do whatever I could to support them getting treatment for their mental illness. But if it means that while I'm doing that, they're beating up on me, there comes a point where I'd say, you know, that's just not my job. Mm, Okay. Well, he has a therapist, but he tells the therapist from his point of view and his therapist says, whoa, you have such awful parents. Aren't they terrible? You know, I mean, and he writes to me. He says, my therapist thinks you're monsters. (laughs) I've told you this before. He needs needs a new therapist because that therapist is probably (laughs) playing some of the same games in their lives if that's the advice he's offering. Yeah. Hmm. 
right. difficult challenges. And, you know, when you were talking earlier about uh, Michael, it's mm. the same conversation, but it sort of is. It's been intertwined. You know, when we talked about him being a tenant and, you know, not really any communication or sharing things. And, and I haven't ever had this thought before, but one of the things that I think drives homelessness is self-imposed isolation. I don't want to have yeah. to deal with anybody. It's too painful. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, I bet if we could, you know, dig into Michael's trauma and pain, it's horrific. And as you oh, say yeah. with Jacob, it's horrific. Mm-hmm. It is. But if you allowed each person, you know, and, and remember the power person dynamic under stress, the person who's been horrifically abused is going to be an horrific abuser. That's just pretty much classic unless they've done their work. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so at what level do you give over of yourself? And, you know, there's that thing that happens when you get on an airplane. They say, put your mask on before you put your kid's mask on. Because yeah. if you're not there, you can't support that child. And if you, you know, take yourself to the edge of destruction or trauma, mm. you know, then you you render yourself unable to support. That's true. It's a it's a it's a big and a challenging call. Michael, you know. Now that Michael downstairs is with us in this way, I'm going to suggest to him that he, I'm going to ask him if he'd be willing to come on the radio show, if you'd be willing to work with him. He was not available for that before, but wouldn't that be just the best if, if he could find some kind of a light at the end of this tunnel he's in? I think the home, my experience with homeless people is that there is no light at the end of the tunnel. Yeah, that's the way and, it looks here. You know, I, I, I think that usually it's based in early abuse, but then the being out on the streets, there's a whole other level of abuse that happens. Oh, yeah. And what? homeless people go through. I mean, you know, we hear every once in a while, this guy was just, you know, it was a couple of years ago, a guy beaten to death with a baseball bat just because he was homeless and some, you know, angry kid came across him. And, and that is, you know, I've talked to a number of homeless people over the years and it's a pretty abusive place to live. But yeah. if you can't face people, if you can't converse with people, if the trauma is so deep that... Mm-hmm. It's it's tough. Another thing we spoke about with him, and this wasn't a requirement, I said, you know, I'm not a one to proselytize coming to church. I have much wider uh, idea of spirituality that would require anyone to go to a church. But my church is loving and friendly. It's an instant community. You don't have to make friends with anybody, but they will be there for you. And they will see you. And you could do some gigs there. You could play at our little suppers that we have. You could come and just improvise. They'd love the sound of the guitar and you singing in the background. Why don't you think about that? And he said, I'll think about that. So we've got a little couple of ideas that might help. 
Well, we'll hold the space that things might open for him. But, you know, then he might find out he can't get this check. And then if he can't get the check, we're not sure what he's going to do anyway. But this has been helpful just to... I, I guess I feel really responsible to help really help somebody, really help somebody. And sometimes you said there's no light at the end of that tunnel. So we're just trying to protect somebody for a period of time, I guess you could say. Well, I think that what's natural for us as humans is to want to be the light for the person who doesn't see or have any. And each individual, of course, has to set their own limit as to how much they're willing to take with someone who's returning abuse for support. Now, so all of a sudden, Ginny, have you got your phone on? Hang up and dial back in. Yeah, I can hear you fine. So she said she yeah. was going to hang but up and dial back in. Yeah, but was your phone muted? No, because I started to hear that no, fluttering yes, noise that sometimes that comes her, through. Okay. Her phone was okay. crackling and okay, stuff. Okay, good. Okay. Well, wait a second while she dials back in. There she is. Yeah. Let's see if it's better. Yeah. You just went silent, and I guess it's my phone. I don't know what happened. Yeah, I started to hear a fluttering sound. I think it was from your end, but... Mm. So I think that, uh, you know, it's it's natural for us as human beings. That's what true humanity is, to want to be the light for someone that's in the darkness and... Everybody has to set their own limit as to how much abuse they're willing to take, you know, to retrieve someone who's been so abused that they don't know how to do anything but lash out. It takes a great deal of patience. And I know that Heartland over the years, you know, the, the whole idea when somebody was in trouble was, well, okay, so if you want to come be on the support team, there's food, there's housing, there's teaching. And I know that many times I extended myself far beyond what I should have. And on some few occasions, just called it and said, no more. And that's it. And you're driving yeah. out of here now. Or you're walking oh out of here now. Or we're taking you to the bus depot now. I've done that maybe three times wow. in wow. 30 years. But it just came yeah. to the point of, uh, I've reached my limit. I've extended everything I can extend and it obviously isn't being reciprocated so and each person has you know we hear of the the miracle story of somebody who went right to the full extreme and, and was able to pull somebody back it's, I think up to each of us to determine where that line is for us mm. yeah So holding the space in both instances, and you know, I do some worksheets around that, you know, what's going on for me around that conversation with Michael and that next level, and healing helplessness. Mm-hmm. Good thought. Awesome. Well, let us know the results of that mind shifter. I think it's a good one. All right. Thanks. All right, any other thoughts for you today? 
No, they're gone. Thanks. Well, we appreciate you, and we hold the space. Thanks, Michael. Welcome back. All right, back. dear heart blessings. All righty, thank you. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right, take care. Yep. Bye-bye. All right, Miss Jeannie. We've got about 19, 18 or 19 minutes left, so we've got time for another great call. If anybody's out there and wants to have a conversation, let's go for it. Our call-in number if you're on one of those stations. There you go. Or if you're on one of those stations where we can't see you, our call-in number is 563-999-3581. And if you call that number, you'll be listening to the show directly. So let's have a conversation. Once you're listening to the show, if you push one, we're talking. So let's talk. Anybody out there in this little end have a thought for us? Question, thought, answer. Well, I had the thought today of talking a little bit. You know, we're going into Easter week. And uh, there's an interesting short piece from Course in Miracles on the whole idea of what the Christian world is celebrating as crucifixion this Friday. And... I think one of the number one things that people need to do is recognize that the reason Yeshua set up what he set up, and people say, well, no, he didn't set that up. Nobody would do that. Well, actually, if you read the passages where Peter tries to get in the way, he's going to save him. He's going to stop that from happening. Yeshua, in that case, addresses Peter directly as Satan, he says, like, stop it, get out of my way, in essence is what he says, Satan. And then he tells us what Satan is. And he says, for you think in the mind of man rather than the plan of God, in carbon-based memory, and its limited ability to think. And so... He purposely set up an experience to demonstrate and refused to be, quote-unquote, saved from it, to demonstrate that the only thing that could impact us is that which we, on some level, energetically participated with. So he goes through that whole experience and comes out the other side unscathed. Chance to see it. There's a play called Cotton Patch Gospel. It's really quite good. And it uh, it's a story about the whole disciples and Yeshua, crucifixion, resurrection, the whole thing. Only it's set in modern-day southern Georgia. And so all the players are the natives of South Georgia. The one, and I don't remember a whole lot about it, it's been years since I saw it, but the one scene in it that really struck me, which I thought was quite hilarious and and quite apropos, is when Yeshua resurrects and he first sees the disciples, he does kind of a twirl looking at his own structure 
And he says, look, guys, it worked. I taught you this. I chose to demonstrate it, and it worked. If you don't buy into abuse, death, and suffering, if there's nothing in you to cooperate with it, then you cannot be killed because the only thing that can kill you is that which is going on inside of you, truly kill you. And so his invitation is to be aware at every moment that you're actually functioning as a human being, actually functioning out of love rather than fear because fear kills. Fear literally, medically kills. Fear is behind more of the world's diseases than we could possibly count up. The real disease is the disease of fear. Not whatever the medicos call it, the ABC or the XYZ disease. And his whole experience, you know, obviously Peter's in fear. And he's going to run up there with a sword and save him. And Yeshua's not coming to this with fear in his mind. He's warned us over and over and over and over and over again, fear not. And those who supposedly are following him that will tell you that the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom are insane and don't know anything about what the man taught. And yes, I've had many people when I point that out after the preacher says fear, and I say, wait a minute, Yeshua said, well, I don't really mean fear. What I mean is have all for God. It's like, no, you didn't mean have all for God. You meant exactly what you said, fear. <laughs> and that's the game. And, of course, we can't lead someone through a piece of work we haven't done. So people who are still living and preaching in fear are going to preach fear and intimidation and, and violation and viciousness and pain and trauma. Of course, Miracles talks about the use of words. And he says, hey, the only valid use of words is not to try to explain the truth. You can't do it. The only valid use of words is to invalidate the insanity that people are doing to themselves. There's where the words, and, and you use the words, you know, the, the, the passage in the Course says, you use the words of darkness not because you believe them, but to prove that they're not true. And so fear is the thing that kills virtually everyone. And so this passage from Course in Miracles the message that crucifixion was intended to teach was that it is not necessary to perceive any form of assault in persecution because you cannot be persecuted. In other words, if you don't participate, you can't be there. So can the persecution happen? There are two responses to persecution. One is you continue to live as a human being. You continue to live as love. And therefore, you have not been assaulted. But to be assaulted, you've got to hold assault energy. And if someone comes along with persecution, it's your mind that's going to add the assault to it. So again, this is a, it's such a powerful the message of the crucifixion. 
message it intended to teach what is not necessary to perceive any form of assault in persecution because you cannot be persecuted. If you respond with anger, you must be equating yourself with the destructible and are therefore regarding yourself insanely. Now, you know, how many thousands of years, I mean, how much of history can we trace the majority of human beings on planet Earth functioning out of fear and hostility? Oh, just about everybody. I mean, we have a few who stand head and shoulders and say, you know, you know, we've got a Gandhi here and there, and we've got a Buddha, and we've got a Yeshua. But otherwise, the record is so... sadly imbalanced toward hostility and fear that people build in their minds a self out of hostility and fear. And then they equate who they truly are with that self, with the destructible self, with the false self. You know, Yeshua says, in order for you to live, you've got to die. As long as you are equating yourself with the false of being, you're functioning as love. And so if you're equating yourself with the destructible, you're regarding yourself insanely. In other words, we have to wake up to our true identity. We have to wake up to who we are. Hold the newborn child, tap into the essence of the newborn, and notice that the newborn is not loving you, but that the newborn is love. Equate yourself with that. Oh, God, how many messages have to be processed through my mind to clean up all the generations in my bloodline that when I'm weak, I'm helpless, I'm to blame, I'm uh, guilty, I'm bad, I'm wrong, I'm a sinner, I'm on, 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 on. And, of course, the preacher stands up there and gives all the same messages that he or she hasn't resolved in their own lives. And they put those messages into the word of Yeshua, into the mouth of Yeshua, and they're not his words. Fear not is his word. Why would a preacher stand up and rage so that little kids are terrified in listening to the hellfire and damnation because the preacher has identified himself, himself with the destructive, with the sinful, and they're railing against themselves, trying to break through their own minds, and they poison millions. So it becomes a matter of waking up this whole crucifixion. Are you willing to give up that false self, literally, to dissolve it? He goes on to say, I've made it perfectly clear that I am just like you, and you are like me, but our fundamental equality can be demonstrated only through joint decision. In other words, are you willing to join with what this awakened human being is? It's interesting, we're, we're in a, our, our culture wars, if you've awakened, you are the object of derision. The word woke has become such a political football. And, you know, 
the whole objective of this work is to wake up from the insanity. So it's one of the most wonderful words in the world, words in the world. But the non-being mind can take it over and use that as a word of condemnation and derision for those who've awakened who they are. So Yeshua is inviting us to step up our thoughts to let loose of the thought disorders based in hostility and fear and false identification of self. You know, somebody says ABC to you, do you go into some sort of rage, some sort of defense, some sort of blame? Then there's your next forgiveness opportunity. And life is here to give us every forgiveness opportunity that we need. And what Yeshua is saying is, I'm inviting you to identify yourself. If you want to be equal with me, because we are equal, we are equals, and much of church angels put him up on some kind of a pedestal where, no, he's not. But they have to ignore him to do that. He says, the things I do, you can do in greater, but ignore him in order to believe what oftentimes is preached. So he goes on to say, you are free to perceive yourself as persecuted if you choose. When you do choose to react that way, however, you might remember that I was persecuted as the world judges. And I did not share that evaluation for myself. How do you suppose it would have gone if Yeshua had reflected what today so many people in the media and in the world are reflecting oh i'm a victim look what you're doing to me you high priest servant you pontius pilate you you know man there with the sword soldier you with the cross oh if you people if you hadn't done this to me i wouldn't be suffering i mean there's a really clear difference here so he says go ahead perceive yourself as persecuted if you like but when you refute, when you choose to act that way, you might remember that I, I mean, this persecution went beyond what most of the world could even fathom. I was persecuted as the world judges, but I didn't share that evaluation for myself. And because, and here's such a powerful, you know, remembering that we live in an energetic world, and because I did not share it, I did not strengthen it. Remember, a shared idea is strengthened by its sharing. We want to share these ideas of the truth of who we are and allow everything less than that to surface as new levels of vitality and aliveness were reached. New levels of that which needs to be healed is, are going to show up. But if you join in a particular piece of mind energy, it becomes your physiology, it becomes your flesh. Remember the opening words in the book of John. In the beginning was the mind energy, not the word, the mind energy, and the mind energy became flesh. Join in the mind energy of self-destruction and surely you'll be destroyed by your own thought. And he goes on to say, I therefore offered a different interpretation of attack. And one, he says, which I want to share with you. If you will believe it, 
and you will help me teach it. So if you can accept that your true nature is that of love and your mind and your physiology are designed to be fueled by love, then by receiving that, of course, when you receive it, you're going to get the opportunity. It's, when it lands in your physiology, it's going to splash up everything that's unlike it for healing. But if you let yourself receive it, then you're going to get to process through what is unlike it. You're going to get to forgive those thoughts that respond that say, no, 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 I truly am a victim. And he's inviting each person to accept that because by accepting that, that's the mind energy that's strengthened both in the world and in your physiology. And so as you accept that, whatever it is we live, we teach. And the thing to recognize is that nobody even needs to be there to see you teach it in order for it to impact and influence the world. Go back and read the passage in Matthew where Yeshua talks about the Lord's Prayer and listen to how much he talks there about going into the silence and being in that private space, spoken to another in order to be taught. But energetically, what we join with, we literally teach, we literally bring into the world. And so breathing with you, appreciating you being here with us to share this time. If it impacts you, pass it on. In the meantime, have the best year yet of your eternal life. It's an awesome gift to give the world. Blessings. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to Mind Shifters Radio with Dr. Michael Rice and myself, Jeannie Rice, and Dr. Tim Hayes and Michelle Pache as we present the first century Aramaic internal process of forgiveness. We are here for two hours every Monday through Friday from 12 noon to 2 o'clock Eastern Time on Mind Shifters Radio. For more information on Aramaic forgiveness, please visit www.whyagain.org. That's www.whyagain.org.